turn to, to God's Word if you have your Bibles on you. And we're looking at 1 Kings, chapter 18, 16 to 39, and then we'll jump to chapter 19, 1 to 5a. If it sounds strange as I'm reading along and you're looking in your Bibles, that's potentially because you're in two kings, one kings. (laughs) I make that mistake all the time, one kings. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied. But you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's command and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but the Baal has 450 prophets Get two, bowels, um, two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God and I will call on the name of the Lord, the God who answers by fire. He is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call in the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So he took the bull that was given to them and prepared it. Then they called in the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar, altar that they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he is deep in thought or busy or or traveling. Maybe he is sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom until their blood flowed. Midday passed and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. They came to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, one of each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of God had come, saying, your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench round it large enough to hold two sieves of seeds. He arranged the wood, cut the ball into pieces and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, fill four large jars with the water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and he did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and he did it a third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, The God of Abraham, 
Isaac, and Israel. Let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all the things at your command. Answer me, Lord. Answer me. So these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Then chapter 19, verse 1 to 5. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. While he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, he came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. Let's pray for Clive as he brings God's word this morning. Father, thank you um, for this story of Elijah and, 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 and the truth that you are the eternal God, the God who answers prayers, the God who, who listens to us. And I pray for Clive as he brings your word this morning that you may open our eyes and to see what it is you're saying in this particular story and open up our hearts, not just to hear it conceptually and intellectually, but to, to process it, that it changes who we are. For your glory. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Ross. I stood there a little while ago in that worship. Thank you, guys. That superb worship. Thank you, all of you, for the way that you pushed out and gave God all that he's worthy of with our hearts and our voices. As I stood there, I prayed for everyone, everyone at least that I could see. I prayed in a language that God gave me, not a language I understand unless God gives me an interpretation, spiritual gift that he gave me, because I know that God knows every man, every woman, every young person here, and I know that God loves every man, every woman, every young person here. And I know that the Holy Spirit, who was helping me in that prayer and praying through me, knows each one of you and how many hairs there are upon your heads because not even a sparrow falls from the sky without God knowing and you are all worth more than many sparrows. And there will be some here who are moving on in God with determination and dedication and you're excited and you're positive and you're full of hope. And then there'll be some of you that are so discouraged and so disillusioned that actually though the word despair is quite heavy, it's a a word that's not far from describing the way you feel at this moment in time. And I want you to know that God loves you. Whatever else I say, I want you to know that. And I want you to know also that Elijah could identify with you. 
So as you move on in this series that we've been looking at of spiritual formation, learning from Old Testament disciples, we've looked at Noah and his faith and faithfulness. We've looked at Joshua and his courage and confidence. And today we come to look at Elijah and his determination, but also his despair. And I'm going to look at four aspects of uh, Elijah in these stories over these chapters. And we'll come to them. But before we even come to those aspects, let's Let's understand a little bit about who this guy is, his name. His name, Elijah, means the Lord is my God. And yet King Ahab, an apostate king, a king who'd rebelled against the prophets, the true prophets, and had followed the ways of false prophets that were those who were eating at the table of his evil wife Jezebel, he had called Elijah a troubler of Israel. A troubler of Israel. Now, Elijah wasn't a troubler of Israel, except sometimes if you tell people that they're doing the wrong thing and they're going the wrong way, they don't like you telling them that. And they just think you're causing them trouble. Whereas actually, if somebody is really going the wrong way, then it's one of the most loving things you can do to lovingly and gently and sensitively warn them. And I can't speak about Elijah's gentleness and sensitivity. He's a man of the Old Covenant. He's an Old Testament prophet. He saw it the way it was. The word was a seer. He was a seer. He saw God's will. He saw God's holiness, and he declared it, and he called the people to repentance. And that wasn't appreciated by Ahab or or Jezebel or the false prophets that they followed. The background is that um, there's a worship of the God that Jezebel followed, because she wasn't a a Jewess, so he he married the way he wasn't supposed to marry. He married outside of his own faith, and she had a faith in Baal, and maybe in Asherah, because when it comes to this incredible conflict on Mount Carmel, there are 450 prophets of Baal, and there are 400 prophets of Asherah. And basically, Elijah is determined and so dedicated to God that he's going to take them on. So let me give you the backstory. Elijah, first of all, we're going to look at the fact, is a determined and a dedicated prophet. But he's going to feel isolation and pressure for being a faithful prophet. That is the backstory, And he's declared a drought. And then there's this, in the midst of this time of drought, there's this huge battle on Mount Carmel where he basically prays and calls fire down from heaven. And everybody there, except the false prophets, declare that God, Elijah's God, Yahweh, the great I am, the Lord, is the one true God. So let's just look a little bit at at this declaration of a drought, first of all. If we go to uh, chapter 17, that's before the readings that Ross has kindly brought for us, and look at the first six verses, I'll read it for us. Elijah is a Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead, and he's going to speak to Ahab. Listen to this. 1 Kings 17 from verse 1. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Now that's a tough thing to believe for a start, but it's not a good thing for a king to hear because his kingdom is going to be uh, impoverished through this drought because there'll be no harvest. There'll be famine. Verse 2, then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, leave here, turn eastward and hide in the Kerith ravine east of the Jordan, and you will drink from the brook that I have ordered, and I have ordered the ravens to feed you there. So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kerith ravine 
east of Jordan and stayed there. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. This is the first and the best and the greatest home delivery service you could ever imagine. God is sending ravens. Ravens are bringing him food, bread, meat. He's by this beautiful brook, Kerith. And it just shows at the outset of this message today, God is the one who is able to meet all your needs, able to provide for all of your needs. This is part of the backstory. When we move to chapter 18 in the first couple of verses, we read, after a long time in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, go and present yourself to Ahab and I will send rain on the land. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. Okay, Now the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab had summoned Obadiah, who was in charge in his place, and Obadiah was a devout believer in the Lord, and while Jezebel was killing off the Lord's prophets, so here's Jezebel, this evil queen, worships Baal, a god, a demonic god, a pagan god, and nothing more than an idol, but children were being sacrificed to Baal. That's how evil we're speaking. She was encouraging that. Her prophets are encouraging that. But here is verse 4, while Jezebel was killing off the Lord's prophets, so she's having other prophets killed, Obadiah, this devout guy, had taken a hundred prophets and hidden them in two caves, fifty in each, and had supplied them with food and water. And then Ahab commands that Obadiah goes through the land looking for Elijah. He wants Elijah dead. He didn't have the courage to take him on face to face when he'd proclaimed there was going to be a doubt. A drought, sorry, not a doubt. Similar. Uh, And verses 41 to 46, let's just fast forward in chapter uh, 18 here. And it says this, Elijah said to Ahab, go eat and drink, for there is the sound of a heavy rain. So Ahab went off to eat and drink, but Elijah climbed to the top of Carmel, Mount Carmel, where he'd seen this amazing victory. He bent down to the ground, put his face between his knees, so he's praying before God in a devout way. And he says then, go and look towards the sea to his servant. He tells his servant to do this. And his servant went up and looked. There's nothing there, said his servant. Seven times Elijah said, God's perfect number, Holy number seven, go back. The seventh time the servant reported, a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. So Elijah said, go and tell Ahab, hitch up your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. You see, the the rain would have made the ground soft and his chariot wheels would have dug in. So Elijah is saying, it's going to rain, it's going to come hard, you need to get on your chariot. Meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds, the wind rose, a heavy rain came on, and Ahab rode off to Jezreel. The power of the Lord came upon Elijah, and tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. Supernatural power comes upon um, Elijah, and he runs ahead of the king. So he's declared this doubt. He's tough. He's dedicated. Is he cruel? Is God cruel that God would allow a drought and a famine? Is God cruel that in this great victory, God allows these prophets of Baal and Peor to be put to death? No, God is love. But God is love in a way that sometimes we don't understand. Because love is strong. 
Love is tough. Love is robust. Love makes difficult, incredibly hard, painful decisions because God is love and there's never been anyone created that God didn't love. But those who are in rebellion and those who are evil and those who reject him, he will retain a remnant so that he could bring forth from the chosen people, the chosen one, Jesus, so that all people can have freedom and liberty and, of course, love in him. But the trouble is, what many people want to do with this book is twist it to say, God couldn't possibly say that. God couldn't possibly mean that because God is love. Yes, and God is the God who's produced these scriptures as supernatural revelation from the Old Testament to the New Testament so that as his spirit helps us to understand and interpret it, we can act in loving ways, even when some of those ways are tough. You see, Elijah is defeating a deception here. Elijah defeats a deception. Listen to some of the aspects of uh, 1 Kings 18, verses 16 to 40, which Ross read for us. You see, what he's done is he's called out these 400 prophets of Baal and these 450 prophets of Asherah, whichever way around it is. Uh, The total is 850 evil false prophets. And actually, Ross read it so well, because when Ross reads what Elijah is saying to these prophets, Ross brought out the irony. And actually, in the underlying Hebrew, it's even stronger. Oh, maybe he's not listening. Maybe he's kind of taking the day off. This is a kind of thing. In the Hebrew, maybe he's gone to the toilet. Maybe he's gone for a... That's the humor. That's the irony. He's taunting them. And they've taken their altar, they've put the bull on the altar. He has to rebuild the broken altar and uses 12 stones to represent the 12 tribes of God's people. And he even has water poured all over it. Three times he's dug a trench so that the water fills it. And when the fire comes, it takes everything, the stone, the wood, the bull, the water, everything goes. And people declare that God is God and Elijah finishes off these prophets. He's taunting them. And the tragedy is that as they look to this demonic, pagan, evil God, they're slashing themselves. They're drawing blood. They're they're giving the same kind of sacrifice that even a, a, a Hebrew would give when corrupted by Jezebel and Ahab and these false prophets. They would sacrifice their firstborn child. Can you imagine sacrificing a baby? So when we think God's cruel... God wants an end to that. I want to take a tangent. And this will be delicate for anyone here for whom this is personal. But it's said in love. There are people, people that we should love and care for and counsel and support that find that darkness closes in on them so much sometimes. They do something which is increasingly and increasingly prominent in our society. They're self-harm. Sometimes they cut themselves. And in a nation that's turned its back on God to a large extent, we need to be the church loving and the church powerful to make a difference in a nation that's turning and has turned its back on God so that people who feel so discouraged and so disillusioned and so doubting and so empty and so hopeless in the darkness, the only relief they feel they can have is to harm themselves. 
And as a pastor, I've seen that many times, and I want you to know I've never ever looked at a person without feeling the love of God for them. They need our love and our support and our encouragement. And if you're here today and that's an issue for you, we're here for you today. You see, the backstory is that there's a huge deception going on here from these false prophets, these prophets of Baal. Do you know on Pentecost Sunday, so-called the day 20th of May, when I read at all three services that the Lord had called me on, the Lord was moving me on, there's a very faithful woman of God who was always here and is always serving, and she's been in this church long, way longer than I ever have. She's a woman of absolute prayer. She brought me a little slip of paper with some verses on 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 to 5, and I'm going to read from 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 5 to you today. And I don't read these verses lightly, but she gave them to me, and on that day she gave them. She said, I just want to say this, and I just want to ask you this. Please don't leave. You're not going to leave us, are you? And I put my hands around her cheeks, and I looked at her and I said, you'll hear something later. What I am doing is following the call of God. These are the verses plus the context. Paul's writing to Timothy, a young pastor, in 2 Timothy chapter 4. I'll read verses 1 to 5. And he says to Timothy, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction, for the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. There's clearly through Paul and clearly through the words of Jesus to the disciples going to be a, a deception in the end times and a turning away of those who have come to faith to a distorted version of the faith. Just as there was a turning away of Ahab to false gods because of Jezebel. Jezebel is a type of evil in Scripture. She's there in Revelation as a type of female evil that speaks untruth into the church. Check it out later in Revelation. And so what this determined and dedicated man is doing is he's standing up for the truth. That's what he's doing. And the second aspect that, that we look at that describes Elijah here it is it's a complete turnaround in a sense. Elijah is discouraged and disillusioned. And there's a painting that you'll see behind me, painted by Frederick Layton, who lived from 1830 to 1896. And it's entitled, Elijah in the Wilderness. And I think what Frederick Layton has captured here is not just that Elijah is in a literal geographical desert, he's in a, a spiritual desert, he's in a desert of dryness. You see the agony that Frederick Layton has captured. Elijah has moved from dedication and determination to discouragement and disillusionment. There's a demonic backlash. Before we look at what's happening 
to Elijah. We read that in, in chapter 18 and verse 4, Jezebel was killing the prophets. Why? There's a demonic backlash. Let, let me just read something from the great apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 10 uh, from verses 19 to 22. Sorry, 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verses 19 to 22. Paul has been speaking about people participating in idol feasts and the Lord's Supper. He's warning Christians in Corinth, don't mix your spirituality. Stay pure. And in verse, 10, uh, in, in verse sorry, 19 of 1 Corinthians 10, he says this, Do I mean that a sacrifice offered to an idol is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, Baal and Asherah were nothing. The idols in Paul's day were nothing, he's saying. He says, next verse 20, No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I don't want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink from the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? This is what Elijah had stood against. He'd stood against this demonic deception and demonic worship and and false demonic prophets demonized and and an evil queen and a corrupt apostate king. But now comes the backlash. So what are the causes of his discouragement and disillusionment? What are, what are the causes? I'm going to list them. Then we'll come back and, and look at them. But when we look at these causes, we see that there's criticism. There's a threat upon his life, and there is spiritual attack. There's fear and anxiety that starts to engulf him. There's absolute exhaustion, not just physical, but emotional and spiritual exhaustion. And there's a huge anticlimax. One, uh, one uh, moment, he's on Mount Carmel and he sees this amazing victory as a fire of God falls. The next minute, he's running terrified. He goes from this incredible victory to this woman threatening his life, knowing she's already killed, he thinks, all of the other prophets. There's a contradistinction, an anticlimax, a huge anticlimax. But there's also a sense of failure and isolation. Ever felt that? Maybe you feel it now. I've felt that. There is so much that I would empathize with Elijah here about. This is not a message from a pastor who's detached and remote, who spends all his time on a mountaintop. I mean, last Sunday morning... Wasn't it a joy to baptize seven people who happened to be of Islamic background, whose testimonies were so vibrant? Wasn't that joyful? And I went from there to be with MY1, our younger teens, 11 to 13-year-olds that will be going, some of them on the camp that Steve founded 10 years ago. Well done, buddy. Awesome. And I had the privilege that Steve has known, and Zoe and now Beth, many times, and no doubt of going down and answering their tough questions. And at the end, I asked the leaders permission, even though I'm the senior pastor. Why? Because they're the leaders. It's their patch. I said, is it okay if I just give these young people a chance to respond to God? Then I explained in as low-key a way as ever and made sure that they felt no pressure. And don't even do this if you're not ready, but with eyes closed and hands in the air to express it after a prayer of commitment, three of those young teens gave their lives to Jesus. 
And then later on, Zoe said, can you come and have a chat with these guys, including one of the ones that Ross has been mentoring so effectively? Three of them, amazing role models. They're really good role models at the heart of the older teens. And I said, yeah, of course I can. What, what do you want to chat about? She said, Clive, just delighted to tell you, these three guys, they want to get baptised. Now, that, you go home on a lunchtime after a morning like that, and you think, how could it get better? Why would you go to Yorkshire? But then sometimes you come down with a crash and you find your strength in God. But there are times when even Elijah struggled and yeah, even I've struggled and even Ross struggles with that. Because just look at some of these, these causes again. He's criticized and there's a threat upon his life in the first two verses of, uh, of 1 Kings 19. Let, let me read it again for you as we go back into our core scriptures. Chapter 19 of 1 Kings. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me be ever so severely if by this time tomorrow I don't make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid and he ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. Couldn't even stand his company, I don't think, anymore. You know when you just don't want to be with someone else? While he himself went a day's journey into the desert, that's tough. He came to a broom tree, he sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the tree and he fell asleep. Listen to what God does. All at once, not a, not a raven, another creature perhaps with wings, an angel. All at once an angel, angelos, messenger of God it means. An angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was a cake of bread. You can almost smell it, you know, homemade bread. Well, angel baked bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then he lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him. Do you know sometimes a touch is a great blessing? I had an Anglican minister who is a good man. We're still friends, so no names. But he said to me, your problem is you think a hug solves everything. And I said, no, I don't think a hug solves everything. I just think it can be quite helpful sometimes. He said, well, I'll be in my office. I said, well, you'll have a long wait. We made it up. We're Christians. The angel touched Elijah and said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled for 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb. This is the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave and he spent the night. So there's a criticism. There's the threat upon his life. This is a spiritual attack. Let me read one more scripture from the uh, New Testament. Ephesians chapter 6 verses 10 to 13. Paul's writing to Christians in Ephesus who are assailed by some evil powers themselves. And he says, finally be strong in the Lord, in his mighty power, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world. What, kings and queens? Yes, yeah, some of them. 
like Ahab and Jezebel, but no, other rulers, fallen angelic rulers, evil spirits. He says the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, therefore put on the full armor of God, so when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you've done everything, to stand. Remember that word, Muttley. Stand. Spiritual attack leads to fear and anxiety. He runs for his life, verse 3. He's exhausted physically, emotionally, and spiritually. He ends up in a desert, and not just a geographical desert, but a desert within his own spirituality. Verse 7, the journey is too much for him. Let me tell you, sometimes the journey is too much. Amen. The journey was too much for him. He had forgotten, even if he knew in the revelation that we have from the new covenant there's a destination, something could never spoil or fade or perish. And his exhaustion gives way to a huge sense of anticlimax after a great victory and a sense of failure and isolation. Listen to this. He wanted to die. He'd had enough. He says, I'm no better than my ancestors. He feels a complete sense of failure. Let me tell you, no prophet, no leader, no pastor is ever perfect. Be very careful that you never put pastors on pedestals. It's an awful long way to fall. If you get a pastor that you don't like the preaching, let's say, of that pastor... Pray so hard for that pastor that their preaching will become so anointed that they just get called to a bigger church. (laughs) If you find someone that doesn't love you and care for you pastorally enough, pray for them that they will be so loving and so caring that they end up getting called to pastor pastors. It gets worse for Elijah, but before we look at how it gets worse, the third aspect, let me just raise the question that God asks Elijah in verse 9. He asks it again of Elijah. The question is this, what are you doing here? And I don't think he means in this desert or on this mountain. I think, how did you get to this place? Have you ever asked that of yourself? How on earth did I get to this place? What went wrong? How did I get here? How did it come to this? And that's a question that God... And God is asking about the geography. Because that's not where Elijah was supposed to be. But God is caring, as we'll see. So the third aspect, it gets even worse. Elijah moves from discouragement and disillusionment to absolute despondency and despair. Despondency and despair hits him. Before we look at the characteristics of this, and we will list the characteristics of this, let's see what Elijah says twice in response to God in verse 10 and verse 14 of chapter 9. In verse 10, he says to God, I've been very zealous. Yes, he had. I've been zealous for the Lord Almighty. Yes, you have. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, God. Yes, they have. They've broken down your altars. Yes, they did. They've put your prophets to death with the sword. Yes, they did. I'm the only one left. No, you're not. You're not. You feel like it, but you're not. And now they're trying to kill me too. Yes, they are. 
And then in verse 14, as if God hadn't heard it and didn't know it before Elijah even said it. Because God knows the words we're about to speak while there are still thoughts in our mind. Before they become words on our tongue. That's what Psalm 139 tells us. He says again in verse 14, I've been very zealous for the Lord Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. They've broken down your altars. They've put the prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left and now they are trying to kill me too. The characteristics that we see here are inner emptiness. Depleted energy levels. A sense of humour. Do you remember him on Mount Carmel and the victory? Oh, your God might have just gone to the loo. It's replaced with self-pity. Let me tell you, we need to guard against that. Because it's corrosive. It it eats away at you. So it's getting to him. It's replaced his humour, self-pity. There are negative thoughts and negative feelings. We need to be aware of that. Remember in Philippians when we said, think of the things that are beautiful and noble and worthy and godly. Take captive other thoughts, Paul writes elsewhere. But negative thoughts and feelings have crowded in. And renunciation takes over. He just wants to give up. He gives up on a sense of responsibility even for himself. He just wants to die. Take my life. I've had enough. And any hope for the future is just seems to have been completely gone. Now there's two words that we, we might use for this. Anxiety and depression. And they're different, but they overlap. And when anxiety and depression come together, you have a perfect storm. And let me tell you that there are times when you cannot pray and battle your way out of it because you feel all of these characteristics mark you. And at that stage, God does a wonderful thing. He may send a raven. He may send an angel. But His Son, Jesus, is with you always. His Spirit will never forsake you. But God will at that stage want you to experience someone with skin on. A human being. A pastor. A small group leader. Part of the pastoral care team. An elder in the church. A friend that you know you you can trust and and pray with. One of our wonderful counsellors. Fiona or Catherine. Maybe a doctor. Maybe even a therapist or a psychologist. Don't despise the gifts that those people have. But when these things come together and drag you down, know that God is going to show you some TLC. Verse 15, and God says this more than once to Elijah, go back the way you came. Go back the way you came. Do you know, you know I was an atheist till the age of 32. The only way I came to know God the Father was through God the Son, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And when everything else seems to be going wrong, I need to come back to the way that I came. I need to come back to Jesus. Somebody gave me a book with 365 names and titles for Jesus. That lady became, she's retired now, an Anglican uh, minister, an Anglican priest. She's a, a, a woman who helped me in my early years to understand about the love of God. And in this book, as I left that church context, she simply wrote this, Clive, whatever the challenge, whatever the problem, whatever the theological tussle, whatever the stress is, always, always, always come back to Jesus. Because he's the way, the truth, and the life. Are you ready for some good news? Oh, so am I. 
Fourthly, finally, Elijah returns to his dependence on God and his incredible discipleship. He grows spiritually. He goes through the furnace, but he comes out refined as fire. He comes out stronger in Jesus. This is the point of this series. This is the point of this message, that we are spiritually formed, that we learn from Elijah and we learn together from Jesus. You see, God now shows great care and compassion great care and compassion. Let's go back to uh, chapter 19 and those verses from 5 to 7. He lay down under a tree and fell asleep and all at once an angel touches him and says, get up and eat. Provides him that beautiful bread, that beautiful fresh water. Then the angel comes back, touches him a second time, tells him to get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. And strengthened by the food, he travels on. And he travels on, but then it's not just an angel, it's the Lord himself who's going to appear to Elijah. And as we look and follow from verse 9, we see this amazing story. Then he went into a cave and he spent the night, and the word of the Lord came to him. You see, God speaks. You know, man cannot live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. When I'm in, in trouble, the thing I need more than anything else is to hear God speak to me. How about you? The word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, and we know what he replied with that devastation. And then in verse 11, the Lord says, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord. The Lord is about to pass by. Listen, nobody can see the presence of God and look God in the face and live. This is an incredible thing that God is telling him. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart, shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord wasn't in the wind. And we want God to do something spectacular, awesome, powerful. It doesn't always work that way. After the wind, there was a great earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. You see, he'd seen God, in a sense, in the fire on Mount Carmel when the whole altar and everything on it was was burned up. It's a sign of God's power, but God wasn't in the fire this time. After the fire came a gentle whisper. You know, I'm getting passionate today, and why wouldn't I? But I pray that you'll hear his voice in a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face, because you see, he knew he couldn't see the face of God and live. He pulls his cloak over his face like the picture behind me. And he went out and stood at the mouth of the cave Then a voice said to him, what are you doing here? Here it is again, what are you doing here? And he replies, as we've seen with the agonized report. And then verse 15, the Lord says to him, go back the way you came. Go to the desert of Damascus. And now he starts to recommission this great man of God. He's shown great care and great compassion. He's spoken his word and now he shows great counsel and a recommissioning. Go back the way you came. Go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazelel, king over Aram. He's going to be a good king. Anoint him. He's going to replace Ahab. I'm done with Ahab. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. There's another king to be anointed. And anoint Elisha, a great prophet with a double portion of anointing that was on Elijah. Anoint Elijah. Elisha, son of Shaphat from Abel Mahola, to succeed you as prophet. You see, he knew it was too much for Elijah, and he's graciously taking him out. 
He takes him up to heaven in a chariot because he's kind to him. Because he's been dedicated and determined and faithful. But he recommissions him. He gives him a new commission, a new hope. And then he says this, where, where Elijah had got it so wrong. Verse 18, Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and all whose mouths have not kissed him. You're not the only one left. I've got a remnant. And you know the way the church is going in the UK, folks? And tragically, in the USA? Decline. So will you be a remnant? Will you? Will you stand for God? Will you stand for his word? Will you make his word what his word says it is? And know that God is love? I want to finish with one final reading of scripture. Because I want you to know that God not only shows great care and compassion for Elijah and great counsel and commission and recommissioning of him. But beyond this, in what we call the time of the New Covenant, the New Testament, if you read with me in Matthew chapter 17, just the first three verses of Matthew 17, you'll see that Elijah, along with Moses, two men who've been determined, two men who've been dedicated Two men who've known all the struggles of disillusionment and even despair are now standing in one of the most wonderful places they could ever stand. Let me read it. Matthew 17, 1 to 3. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. So there's another mountain. And there Jesus was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as as light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah. Do you know who I want to stand alongside? Do you know I want to stand with me when the going gets tough? People who will be determined and dedicated. Not perfect people, not people that never get discouraged or disillusioned, but people who love God and love his word and have been through the fiery furnace. That's the kind of people. And God the Father blesses Elijah along with Moses because they, having been with God since the time God took Elijah up in in that chariot. They've been with God and now they stand on this mountain with God's Son, Jesus, God the Son, as he's transfigured and as he speaks the word, this is my Son, listen to him. Motley, I hope you're listening to God. I hope you'll stay dedicated and determined, loving and committed to our Heavenly Father. Paul, if you'd like to come back, I'll just pray for us. Let's stand to pray. Let's just be quiet before God. Holy Spirit, please lead us in this prayer. For any who are discouraged and disillusioned, 
the blessing and favour of God be upon you. The tender care of God minister to you. The peace of God which transcends all understanding guard your heart and mind. For those of you who are despairing, the grace and mercy of God lift your spirits and bless you. For those of you who are struggling, even struggling with the Word of God, and what some claim it says, may the love of God and the revelation of God open your eyes to understand. And for every single one of us, Father God, help us like Elijah. Even when we're struggling so much, we don't even know how to keep looking to Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. In his name we pray all these things. Amen.